A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hey, welcome back to my conversation with Lydia Slaby, part two. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it first. And either way, I hope you enjoy part two. I think there's something really, really profound, really profoundly self-aware, you know, in that or very honest in admitting that. I got so many thoughts about this right now, <laughs> acknowledging that I think this is coming from a very privileged perspective, at least for me, you know, yeah. saying, I think there is something terrifying about freedom. There's something overwhelming about seemingly unlimited opportunity. You know, when you have resources, when you have choices, when you have options, that there's a part, I mean, in fact, we see this in marketing research, right? That if you give consumers two, three choices, they'll pick easily. You give them 18, they'll freeze yeah. up, shut down, walk away. And yep. the same thing happens in our lives. And it's my belief, and I could be wrong, of course, but I think that a lot of people who are afraid of the possibility that life contains will continue to keep themselves small by being in roles, jobs, relationships, you know, having hobbies or addictions that aren't reflections of their true desires or their highest self, but it's, it's because it's easier than really taking responsibility and, and going for the possibility that's, that's available. Yeah. No, and I, I agree. And I do think it comes from a very privileged perspective, you know, the joy of having <clears throat> infinite choices, right? But this reminds me actually of a story. So bo both of my grandmothers went to college, uh, which is a remarkable thing to be able to say. My father's mother graduated from Vassar in like 1925 or something. Wow. And I know, right? And at one point she looked at me when I was much younger. She She passed in 2006, but... She looked at me and she said, I was in college. She said, you know, my life was easier because I didn't have as many choices, you know, and she's, and she, she quickly followed that up with like, of course, I'm delighted that I can vote. And of course I'm, you know, of course, all of the things that feminism has brought to women has given us so much, but at the same time, it has opened up this whole world of decisions that we now have to make. Yeah. Um, and there's no part of me that's complaining about that, but at the same time, it is something that is, that takes energy that, that can be tiring. Yeah. Um, and you know, oftentimes we don't make decisions to change because we're tired. You know, we're so beaten down by the life that we have that we can't possibly think about a way to switch it. I, yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Interesting. 
Well, let me ask you this one about pain, because, you know, I've I think most people listening have probably had the experience of being in a hospital and having at least seen those faces from like a zero is a smiley face and like 10 is the frowny, crying, painful <laughs> yeah. face. And, and the doctors will ask you. Um, Stupid you, sign. You know, yeah, to, to rate your pain. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't I've never been in a situation like you were where you you had, you know, something so severe going on with your body. But um, I was really moved to read that you were at times a 10 out of 10 on the pain yeah. scale. Yeah. Right. And that you you just you talk about staying present with the pain. It was only when you were successful in being present with the pain that that would be enough to lessen it to something like a 9.5, which would then give you enough space to breathe a little deeper, to endure it. Will you talk about what you've come to understand about? I mean, there's this saying too, right? I think it was attributed. I think it's attributed to Rumi about the cure for the pain is in the pain. Oh, you know, wow. I've never heard that before, but yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but what I mean, what did you learn about pain and what did you learn about grace and what did you learn about being present in in being able to endure, you know, the, in, the most intense? I would even I would imagine suffering is probably not too strong a word. What did you learn no. about that? So the the specific instance that you're talking about is um, occurred probably about two weeks after I was diagnosed. And so very early in my, in my learning of figuring out how to stay present. And um, I was suffering from something called bony pain, uh, which is a delightfully cheerful phrase for what it actually is. Um, basically my bone marrow was expanding inside my bones. And so my bones felt like they were about to break from the inside out. And I felt it throughout my hips and my sacrum and my shoulders and so literally, I mean, I felt like I was going to explode. What causes that? Um, in my case, it was caused by a medication called Nulasta, which is designed to stimulate your bone marrow so that um, you don't completely lose your immune system while you're going through chemotherapy. And I'd lost so much weight so quickly that my dosage had been off. And so they gave me the dosage for someone who was about 10 pounds heavier than I actually was because I'd lost so much weight during the whole thing. And, um, and so it, it literally knocked me flat um, to the point where after we figured out what was going on, they put me into the hospital and they basically knocked me out for two, week, for two days um, while my body processed the medication. But before they knocked me out, I was... I was at a 10. I was firmly at a 10. Um, and no sort of medications that came from a pharmacy was helping. I mean, I was on Vicodin. I was on sort of these opiates and um, nothing was helping. And it was my first true moment in realizing the gift of the body's awareness of being present gave me. So... I would be lying. I was lying on this bed in my doctor's office and Michael was sitting next to me. And the minute that my brain started saying, oh, wow, I'm in a lot of pain, which, you know, that's pretty much the only thing my brain was capable of saying at that point, the pain would get worse. And the minute that my brain stopped and I literally just breathed because it's the only thing I could do. I couldn't move. I could barely breathe, but it was I had to the pain got a tiny little bit better. 
And learning that being present in that way actually helped my body manage its own agony was a remarkable lesson for me. And the first time I'd ever had the opportunity to put two and two together for that, that, you know, the body's demand for us to stay present is actually of value to our body. And it's of value to my mind because my mind wasn't getting anything out of the fact that it was noticing that I was in pain. It was just commenting on it. Yeah. It's like, you know, your maiden aunt saying, well, you haven't gotten married yet. And it's like, well, duh. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's not helpful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but learning in such a visceral way that my mind wasn't actually helping and all my body needed was for me to just be purely 100% present was extraordinary. I don't know if it's a lesson that I would voluntarily choose in that particular way, but it really was one of those things where, you know, I sort of, after waking up in the hospital two days later, I kind of started thinking about it and I was like, wow, that just, that happened. My body suddenly felt free to be calm. Whereas all my brain was doing, it was stressing it out. Mm. Um, and so, you know, finding some calm inside that absolute agony was, I mean, ambrosia, basically. That's amazing. <clears throat> and it's yeah. not, as you write, it's not that it magically dissipated it and took it from a, you know, a 10 to a zero. I mean, it was, no. it was you know, 5% reduction, but it was substantial. It was meaningful. Yeah. Huge. Amazing. Yeah. Well, okay. So... Then the, then the questions just keep coming. <laughs> Maybe I'll save this one because I realize now that I want to, I want to, I do want to ask you, and let's do it here before we transition to the next section. But you talk toward the end of the book about a friend of yours who introduced you to someone who's now become a friend of both yours and mine, the gentleman yes. who facilitates the experience on the mountain in New Mexico, who's been a yes. guest on this show, I think I told you. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so at any rate, will you, if you're willing, will you share with us what was your journey to connect with um, this native healer? And what was it? <laughs> how did you get there? Why did you get there? And what did you learn once you were there? So I'll start with the easy part. Um, a very, very good friend of mine uh one of those humans that I wouldn't be who I am without that, this human in my life. So a year and a half after I was done with chemotherapy, I had emergency open heart surgery, which is a story for another day. And two weeks after my surgery, she called me, you know, and I answered the phone and she burst into tears the minute that she heard my voice. And she said, you know, after kind of getting through that, she said, all right, enough of this shit. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And she said, enough of this shit. You're going to see this indigenous healer. And that's all there is to it. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm lying in bed with a broken sternum and I'm recovering from heart, heart surgery. Like, I'm not going anywhere. And she said, yeah, you are. You're going. You're just going. Like, I don't care that you live in Chicago and that he's in New Mexico, but you are going. Because if I have to hear from your husband one more time that you've almost died on a hospital bed, I'm going to lose my mind. And I said, Oh, okay. I mean, it's, it, she was just like swept through my life like a tsunami. I mean, I had no choice but to obey. And, um, and <laughs> what, so what a good friend. 
<laughs> I know, right? Just extraordinary human being. And um, so five weeks after I had been released from the hospital from open heart surgery, I'm on a plane to New Mexico. I had to read and- that part. Honestly, it was kind of like reading through my fingers. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so brutal. You know, I can hardly believe that you you went through that. But yeah, anyway, it, you're right. That's a story for another day. People will have to read the book to get to that because it's, oh, oh my gosh, it's. Yeah, the heart surgery part. Yeah. yeah, that was that was another exercise in being present. But yeah, so five weeks later, I'm on this plane and I'm going to New Mexico and um, this lovely medicine man um, meets me and puts me into a sweat lodge for three days in a row. And I'd never done a sweat lodge. I'd barely heard of them. Um, my knowledge of indigenous medicine is woefully small but something happened during my first sweat lodge that made my body stop hurting so you know i had a broken sternum from the heart surgery and that stopped hurting and then after the second sweat lodge another aspect of what i'd been dealing with also stopped hurting and then after the third sweat lodge when my body was actually beginning to feel like I hadn't been in the surgical suite five weeks earlier, I'd stopped crying and I'd been crying for months. You know, I had no idea why I was crying, but I stopped. And so I, (laughs) I looked at him and I was like, I have no idea what just happened to me, but something very clearly and very obviously did. And so how do I get more of it? (laughs) And so he and I ended up having a, Um, a long conversation and then he and I have been in a relationship now for seven years where he's very much one of my most profound teachers mostly in his extraordinary ability to just hold a mirror up to my face and show me exactly what it is that I'm saying or what it is exactly that I'm doing or how it is that I'm being in a way to help me learn about who I am wow Um, yeah and it all started with that one phone call (laughs) amazing yeah. That, what a gift. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing about that. Okay. So l- I want to transition us to the enlightening lightning round. If, oh my God. if okay. you're ready. I am ready for, n- I have no idea what's about to happen. So <laughs> okay. Very exciting. So it's a series of several short questions. You can answer as long as you want. My aim is to just ask the question and get out of the way. Occasionally I might ask you to expound on something, but that's it. And it's like eight, nine questions. Okay. Is this like a Rorschach test where I should just go with whatever comes in front of my mind? That's my recommendation. <laughs> yes. Okay. This is the psychological analysis part. Here we go. Perfect. Okay. Number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Okay. Life is like a roller coaster. Number two, what's something at which you wish you were better? Loving. Number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Don't live your life with the hope that people will like you. Number four. What book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Ishmael. Why that book? Because there's something about getting extraordinary life advice from a gorilla that just makes things better. (laughs) Daniel Quinn. It's been a long time since I've read that book. Right? It's fun to reread every now and again. Yeah. Okay, number five. So you travel a fair amount. 
What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Leggings. There's nothing quite like being comfortable on a plane mm-hmm. to make the to make the landing and the and the rest of the trip better. Yeah. I wouldn't know. I don't I don't take leggings with me, but I did hear a previous Scott Harrison said warm clothes like socks on yes. a plane, for sure. Yeah. I get so, that. So Have I Scott's totally been on this podcast? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I love that. Okay, number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Kundalini yoga. I st- I've started doing kundalini yoga. And, uh, yeah. How have you learned? There's a remarkable teacher who lives five miles from my house. So I go see her once a week. Right on. <laughs> number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Someone who wasn't American. That's not a what. I wish that every American knew someone who was not an American. Mm. Why that? Why do you, what would that do? Us versus them. It breaks down those walls. Yeah. And I think it's so important for those walls to just be gone. Agreed. Number eight. What's the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever heard and successfully applied? Treat the relationship as a third entity. So there's me, there's the friend or the partner, and then there's the relationship. And you have to take care of both the friend or the partner and the relationship with an equal amount of diligence. How do you do that? (laughs) By staying present to the needs of both. Okay. (laughs) I'll accept that answer. That'll work. (laughs) Actually, by staying present to the needs of all three, but you know. Yeah. Now that makes sense. <laughs> uh, a number nine. So aside from compound interest, what's the most important lesson you've learned about money or something you're sure to do or not do with it? Can't take it with you. And invariably, there's someone who needs my $5 more than I do. Okay. So thank you for that. You've survived the enlightening lightning round. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Did I win? You, yes. <laughs> we're all, we're all winners here. So, okay. So the last part of the interview, uh, is an exploration a little bit of the creative process and your advice or sharing some of your experience with, with those who are listening in ways that will help them complete their own projects, writing projects. Before we mm-hmm. turn to that, however, I, I just want to put this here to make sure that I include it and don't try to squeeze it in at the very end. Um, the first thing is if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Well, I mean, the easiest and least effort is uh, to just follow me on social media. I spend most of my time on Instagram. I'm at Lydia Slaby, um, but I also do have a Twitter account and I'm on Facebook. Um, Slightly more high touch. I have a website and a blog at www.lydiaslaby.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletters, which are highly sporadic. Um, And then, of course, read my book. And then you can email me and tell me what you think about it. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. And by the way, on the website, um, because you started blogging at hairoptional.com. Is that right? Yes. And hairoptional.com now forwards to my new website, but yes. So people could go read the original blog posts as you were going through your experience if they go now to lydiaslaby.com. Yep, you can. That's all there ever since 2012. Amazing. Right on. Yeah. Cool. And then, and then the other thing that I want to just put here to make sure that I 
share it with you is that as a small expression of my gratitude to you for making time to talk with me today, I have gone on kiva.org and I've made a $100 micro loan to Majida, who is a woman who lives in Ali Pradar, India. She'll use this money to purchase rice, spices, sugar, in order to expand her grocery business, to improve the quality of life in her community and for herself and her family. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, thank you. But, wow. Uh, we all touch lives in ways that I think we'll never really understand. And, you know, you and I will probably never meet Majida, but uh, hopefully we've done something that will help improve the quality of life somewhere for someone. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. So the last part of the conversation here, as I mentioned, is an exploration of the creative process. Let me start by asking you this. When did you first know that you were a writer? <laughs> Seventh grade. <laughs> what happened? So... I've always been a math person. Um, my brain just kind of works in the way that math works. But in seventh grade, my English teacher taught us how to diagram a sentence. And suddenly, English became a math problem. And then after we were taught how to diagram a sentence, which I don't even know if anybody knows how to do anymore, um, we were taught the structure of a five-paragraph essay. And... The fact that I could apply a math equation to English suddenly made writing fun for me. I know that sounds crazy, but it did. And the fact that I could express my own argument and my own ideas using my own words, using carefully structured sentences that fit perfectly into a diagrammable method in a five-paragraph structure... It was, it was like the best thing I had ever learned. Wow. Um, and then I, you know, seventh grade. Yeah. And then every single job I've had ever since graduating from college has been a writing job of some sort. Um, and just this most recent version is just one that's more creative than the others. Nexus IT helps companies of all sizes manage their information technology with hyper-responsive, white-glove IT support and services to handle the most basic tasks, like monitoring and maintenance, to the more complex projects like digital transformation. Visit their website at nexusitc.net. Obviously, your seventh grade English teacher had a pretty profound impact on you and your development as a writer. Um, mm -hmm. Who else has been instrumental in, in your growth as a writer and what have you learned from them? One of the supervisors I had in my first job with the state of Massachusetts uh, was a former lawyer who was working in this little division where I was. And we were helping the cities and towns in Massachusetts go through financial hurdles. And so we would come in and we would diagnose their problems and we would write up a report to help them change whatever needed to be changed in the treasurer's office or the assessor's office or how, how often were those reports see your issue here is you're spending more money than you're bringing in <laughs> <laughs> right yeah exactly um or you know the person you have in this job is wildly incompetent um but um so he taught me and i still to this very day i hear his voice shouting in my head he would always use the phrase with me words mean things so his 
true lesson to me was pick your words carefully. And the English language is just a delight of vocabulary. And if you mean kind, say kind, don't say nice. If, you know, if you mean angry, say angry, don't say frustrated. Um, and so he taught me that words mean things. And I know that sounds very simple, but as a writer and especially as a lawyer and then now as a creative writer where I really want to try and have people feel what I'm going through, the idea of word choice is so important to me. Um, and so, yeah, I hear Joe's voice in my head a lot. Words, <laughs> words mean, mean things. things. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. So is it true that everyone who recovers from cancer, writes a book, runs a marathon, or starts a nonprofit? Oh my God, in my experience, that's 100% true. Um, sometimes all three. Um, but yeah, I have yet to meet a cancer survivor who hasn't done at least one of those. Oh. It's remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Well, there is so much that you've <laughs> learned, right? And to be able to share and, and enroll and involve other people, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. But staying with the exploration of writing and creativity... Will you share with me, what was the journey? And I know just a moment ago, we talked about you were blogging about your experience mm -hmm. as you were going through it, mm -hmm. which I think is part of what makes your book so powerful is that you have, it, it seems like you were able to draw upon, you know, these real time self created reports of what was occurring and not just reconstructing from memory like, oh, I think this happened and it happened this way, but you yeah. had this rich I had source, source material. material. Yeah, which is huge, <laughs> which is huge, right? But yep. will you walk... So obviously the blog is a part of this, probably an answer to this question. But what was the process that you followed? Basically from the... Mo uh, let me actually go sideways and ask this question. When did you know that you were going to write this book? What was the moment? <sighs> actually, it was right after I met our mutual friend on that New Mexican mountain. Um so like because, seven years ago? Yeah, just about. Well, no, it was 2014. So five years ago. Um, right around now, actually. Um, he, you know, I was just in ag. I was in mental agony. And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, what is it that you want to do? And of course, I started spouting off, you know, oh, I have to go back to work. I have to earn money. I have to do that. And he said, enough. He said, what do you want to do? And he asked it to me in a way that I couldn't lie to myself and I couldn't just fill it with words. And the only thing that flashed into my head was, right. The only thing I want to do is write. It's the only thing, it's one of the very few things that brought me calm while I was in the hospital. Um, it was one of the few things that brought me calm when I went back to work. And he looked at me and he was like, so go write. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> There's a lot of wisdom like, in that, man. And he was like, really? Yeah, I know exactly. I, I was like, it's not that easy. And he was like, really? Like, seems pretty like you pick up a piece of paper and a pen and you start writing. It's like, this isn't rocket science. Um, and so that was when I first realized that my writing was more than just an outlet. It was, um, you know, and then after I, I thought about it and I was like, wow, I've spent my literally my entire adult life writing. Um, I just hadn't been doing it creatively. Okay, well, maybe I'll give it a shot creatively. And oh my God, am I going to be wasting my legal degree? And you know, blah, 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 blah. Actually, one of the biggest compliments I've gotten about my book was um, 
a partner at a law firm who's a mentor of mine, he, he said, you know, I read your book and I loved it. And one of the reasons why I loved it is because I could, I, I could tell that a brilliantly educated lawyer had written it. He was like, you make arguments and you back them up and you, you know, like it is a beautifully written book. And like, and that's honest, the best compliment I've ever gotten is being complimented uh. on my writing from a good lawyer. So that, that's when I knew that I wanted to write when I knew I was writing this book was shortly afterwards. Um, and then I didn't know that I actually wanted to publish this book until the manuscript was complete. And, um, and I read the manuscript, you know, 20 versions ago and my husband read the manuscript and both of us were like, Oh wait, there's something here that's not just for my own healing that actually could be really useful for other people's personal work. Mm. Um, and so that was when I started shopping it out and trying to figure out how to get it out into the big world. Wow. Amazing. And will you talk a little bit about what that process was like? How did you, so from the moment you completed a manuscript and how many words was it by the way at that time? About 95,000. 95,000. Oh, 95, well, that's a big, yeah. that's a lot of work. Yeah. And it what was, did the, uh, the published work end up being? Around 65,000. <laughs> so it went through a lot of edits between then and now. Tell me about the editorial process, because I understand there was this whole thing that I didn't get to read about, about your experience in New Zealand and riding horses and mm -hmm. this kind of thing. I, I put it on my blog if you want to. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah. that was originally in the book and then it wasn't, mm -hmm. right? So that got cut and other things. But will you talk about, you know, just again, maybe this is a little bit of anticipation or helping people understand, you know, who are maybe first time or aspiring authors, what they can expect, where they they pour their heart out, they get it done, which is in and of itself an epic, you know, struggle. And then all of a sudden some editor comes along and goes, Hey, like a third of this isn't going to make it to publication. Right? <laughs> yep. Will you talk um, about what was that like? So the trick is the trick for me was learning when my personal process had stopped with the book or it at least stopped becoming the most important thing for the book. What do you so, mean? So I wrote the book in order to recover from my health and relationship misery. I mean, there were moments when I was writing the book where I was on the phone with my therapist three times a week to just get through the emotions that surrounded the trauma. And so by the time I was done with the manuscripts, I was done. I was done with the emotional trauma of the story. And at that point, it was just a story to help other people get through their own emotional and physical traumas. The trick that I had to learn was making sure that I was complete with my own work, my own personal work, before the book became something for someone else. Hmm. Um, because editors, and my editors, brilliant and extraordinary and compassionate and wonderful, but she knows what other people are interested in and yeah. how many times they need to hear it and how much medical detail is too much and whether we're getting off track by adding in this story over here um, and whether we need to add another story here in order to make this whole idea complete. So she knows what makes a good book and the only thing that I knew was what made my story. Mm -hmm. And so in order to actually make a good book out of my story, I had to become a student and I had to become her student. And the book was 
I mean, I don't want to say it was like the wrestling, like we were wrestling over it because we weren't. We were wrestling with it. But if I had been incomplete with my personal work before I let her start doing what she was doing, then the book wouldn't be what it is because I would have put up too many fights. I would have said, no, 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 I need to say that three times because that's what went through my head. And she's like, I don't care. That's what went through your head. Like we get the point the first time, you know? And it's like, but, and so I had to learn to let go of the, um, of the emotion around it. And I'd spent so much time. I mean, I wrote it for 16 months and then I sat with it for a year and then I started editing it. And I didn't even start writing it until three years after the beginning of the story. So it's, it's a combination of making sure that I got my whole heart out into the first draft and that I had enough time to be complete with the story before we started, you know, rearranging it and moving around and doing everything that we needed to do. And so that was step one. And step two was um, I'm very coachable. I think it's my years of being an athlete, but you know, when, when a coach tells me that I'm doing something wrong, I'll change it because they obviously know what they're talking about and I'm a student. And so I had to learn to be a student to my editor and sure, I'm an adult and I have my own ideas. And so I would push back, but if she made a good argument, you know, like not only am I a good student, but I'm also a lawyer. Like if I'm in the face of a good argument, I'm going to admit it. And so you know, but we also had to learn how to work together. And I was lucky enough that our personalities matched in a way that we could work together. Yeah. What, um, what a gift. I mean, I think having, we have this idea, many of us that writing is a solitary endeavor. And in some ways it is, but yeah, at the oh, same time, the first part is, yeah. yeah, no book is, is really, or at least I would contend no book really worth reading this might not be literally <laughs> true, but is is done in isolation, right? It's a team. No, there's a team, and the, and the product of many minds. How did you yeah. how did you find this editor, and how did you know that it was somebody that you were going to vibe with, and that was going to help you produce something you were really proud of? That is a story. Um, the very brief version is that you know I went to an Ivy League college, I went to Northwestern for graduate school. I wanted to be published by one of the big five publishing houses. And I, the only way to get to one of the big five is you have to get an agent. And so I asked everyone in my life that I knew had connections to agents and they all introduced me to all of their people. And after the fifth conversation with a literary agent who had taken a look at, you know, my book proposal and told me that cancer memoirs didn't sell I realized that this was not going to be the route for me to get my book out there. And I'll just as a side, the, uh, the, the agent for Paul Kalanithi told me that cancer memoirs don't sell as Paul Kalanithi's book was number one on the New York times bestseller list. <laughs> and I was like, ah, ah, uh, okay, well, I don't know how to handle that, that lie. So we'll just move on. Um, oh. And so then what I did is I reached out to a friend of Michael's who used to be a speechwriter for, um, in, you know, in, in the government and asked him for his advice. And one thing led to another. And I found this smaller publisher and she read my manuscript and it was like, it needed a lot of work. I mean, as I mentioned, it was 95,000 words. It was basically a 95,000 word blog post. And she called me up and she said, I want to buy it. 
And I said, are you kidding me? But cancer memoirs don't, I mean, I'd, you know, I'd heard all of this, cancer memoirs don't sell, it's too long, like, it's, you know, da-da-da. And she was like, no, this isn't a cancer memoir. This is a transformation memoir, and I want to sell it. She's like, let me buy it from you, and I will sell it. Wow. Um, and so the trick was finding someone who saw the kernel of gold inside the the pan of muck, you know? She saw it, and... She's hilarious and close to my age, and we vibed on a personal level. Um, but she called my she she called my baby a transformation memoir when I didn't even know to use the words to call it that, you know. And she was like, "Every single woman I know needs to read this book." And she was like, "And most of the men." She was like, "Not in its current version, but we'll get there." <laughs> wow, well, that's so so wonderful to have somebody that has that. Understanding that vision, you know, beyond perhaps even what you had for for your own project. Yeah. What a gift. Yep. And, and by so the she way, did. She, yeah, she well, really did. And what I'm what I'm thinking about is I listen, right? Because I'm attempting to always anticipate what's the listener, the person who's hearing you and me have this conversation. What are they saying? Mm-hmm. And and what I hope they're taking away is, although in some ways, you know, your background, your education, your experience is, you know, maybe unrelatable for them. They don't have an Ivy League, you know, this kind of thing. But the process you followed is something that they could do. They can reach out to people in their lives. They can have a Absolutely. clear intention. They can, yep. you know, have the conversations and not. And, and one of the things I love is that even though you had this aspiration to be published by one of the big five, which, I mean, I think probably just about everyone does, although... I've had enough conversations with authors to learn that even though many people Apparently want to, it's not the best. Yeah, yeah. it's not always the best. But yeah. and that's an aside. That you know, you had there were aspects to your approach that others, even if they don't have what you have, can still very much follow. Absolutely. Right? So I don't yeah. want. I hope that doesn't get lost for anybody who's listening. I mean, the lesson there is pound your network. I mean, pound your network. LinkedIn is an amazing resource. Just type author or writer or editor or anything that resembles any of those words into LinkedIn. And even if you only have 40 connections, you know, each of those 40 connections has at least 40 connections. And someone will get you to somewhere, will get you to somewhere. And then eventually one of those people will introduce you to someone else. And it may be a seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, but like you get there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, pound your network. That's that's my only advice. <laughs> yeah. No, that's <laughs> and and that's write good. a halfway decent book. But like you know. <laughs> yeah, there's that. That helps. That helps for sure. For sure. Well, cool. Well, let's see. What haven't I thought to ask about the creative process? I often like to ask if you have any rituals. If you had a soundtrack, do you do you like? Are you a morning mm-hmm. you know person or an owl well, a night yeah. owl? Yeah, like any, I'm a morning like person. That. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to recognize when you have your creative bug. So mm-hmm. my creative bug is between five and 11 in the morning. And so, you know, don't schedule writing time from three to six if your creative bug is from five to 11. So what I did, especially when I was in the, in the true throes of writing this book is I just blocked out every morning and I would write all morning long and then I would work out at around noon and then I would have any appointments or, you know, whatever was happening with the rest of my day, some of my consulting work, I would do that in the afternoon. So I protected my writing time as fiercely as I protected meetings with other human beings. I 
Um, I listen to music. I listen to music that doesn't have English words to distract me. So either purely instrumental or um, I listen to a lot of chanting music, actually, when I write. What's some of um, your favorite? So I, I use um, Wah is a band, W-A-H exclamation point. Um, I, I just put in their radio station to Pandora and whatever spits out of that is works for me. I write, uh, I don't get hypoglycemia. And so I usually don't even eat until I'm done writing, um, which my sister finds incredibly strange, but it works for me. I write, in, I, I've, I set up my office so that actually my cats have space on my desk or on my lap. Otherwise, they'll just paw at me. And so it was just easier to set up space for them. And it was actually really wonderful to have them there because, you know, they're furry and they're warm. And until you get to the editing stage, writing really is solitary. And so if you have creatures that can keep you company, it's, um, it's a true gift. Um, what else? I mean, I write on a... You know, um, my computer some people have to write longhand i mean you know that that all depends um did you use word or did you use some other fancy software i you know i use like six different things um i write my blog posts on evernote and then i transfer them over the website and so i started writing the book in evernote and then i was like that's not gonna work and so then i i switched things over to word and then by the time that i was editing them with my editor we had to switch them over to google docs and so you know i've started actually writing my second book just using google docs because you know we're not whatever works for you caffeine or no caffeine <laughs> it depends on the day honestly um i i swore to myself that i would write every day and the days that you wake up where writing is the last thing you want to do and you have no ideas and it's work. It is true work. Those are the days where I'd, you know, clean the kitchen and I'd, you know, make tea and I'd do all sorts of things before I would actually get in front of my computer. But the days where I was truly inspired, um, I would literally grab my computer out of my office, bring it back to bed and I wouldn't move until four in the afternoon. Wow. Um, and Elizabeth Gilbert actually does a remarkable podcast on creativity um, that I think is worth all creatives, authors or otherwise, um, watching. Because when those moments of the muse, whatever you want to call it, the muse, the zephyr, the genius, whatever it is that's flying by you and giving you your ideas, when when it shows up, write it. Because it's only going to be there for two or three days and then it's gone. And then you have to go back to cleaning the sink and making tea and baking or whatever it is that's going to get you through writer's block. Otherwise, the biggest advice that I give people, um, well, one that's general and one that's pretty specific, but the general advice is be honest. I mean, my book is viscerally honest and it's vulnerable and it was really hard to write. And for some people, it's pretty hard to read as a result. Mm -hmm. um, I hope not that hard, but you know. I've read so many books and articles and personal essays and da 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 that just felt inauthentic. And I was furious at the end of it. Like, this is a waste of everybody's time. It was a waste of the author's time. It was a waste of my time. Like, this is just, what is the point of this piece of creativity even being out in the world? I mean, you know, if you're writing a personal book, write a personal book. Like, don't couch it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't, don't hide who who you are in favor for who you think people want to see. Yeah. Um, because it's not going to, 
every time I tried to do that, it didn't help me as the writer. And I knew it wouldn't help my reader. So there was that. Um, and then more specifically, uh, a lot of people actually asked me about how intimate, you know, we mentioned it at the beginning, but the relationship between me and my husband and how much I wrote about him in the book. I just want to reiterate the importance of um, telling your own story, even if it's intimately involved with somebody else's story, um, to make sure that we, we're telling our own stories um, and have that other person read it. And if you're touching on his story at all or her story, then then change it. You know, not to go back to lawyering, but it's it's akin to hearsay. Like, don't write hearsay. Only write your own personal perspective. And then I used humor very strategically to help lighten the load of really tough stuff. But that was my own personal thing. Some people like reading really tough stuff without any humor. So that's what I did. Some some people are masochists. <laughs> some, <laughs> some people. No. Some people are. Well, I, and you mentioned there that you're already working on your next book. I am. Will you share um, just a little bit about that? I can. And actually, something you said earlier makes me think that I need to start blogging about it. But um, so I moved to this nowhere town in the middle of nowhere um, in order to be closer to my sister and her family, as well as my parents. And um, is your mom still a hands on healer? She's not. Um, uh, so she's it was, not. What, is it unfair to say it was just a phase or? No, I mean, she she has lived her life since that training, living the lessons that she learned, um, mm. but she doesn't actually practice anymore. And uh, so both my sister and I had cancer at the same time and it 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 broke. I think it is fair to say that it broke a fundamental part of who my parents are. Yeah. And, um, and, and you're your parents' only two kids, right? Yeah, it's just so, the two of us. Man, that has got to yeah. be challenging. It is. And, and um, for two lovely, smart, charming human beings in their late 70s, they are older and um, need more help than any of us would have expected at this point in their lives. And so I moved here in order to be of service to them and to be of service to my sister. And um, uh, so my next book is about that, is about coming back into my family of origin after 20 years and um, learning to become a caregiver, which is not my strongest part of my personality and how to be a caregiver with uh, compassion and uh, presence Wow! and failing miserably nine times out of 10 um, and then trying again. <laughs> so, you know, this is not going to be a how to guide. It's more going to be a, it's going to be very much another memoir, but um, that will be the focus of it is, is coming back into my family of origin and figuring it out. Sounds humbling. It's remarkable. Yeah. How humbling it is. It's <laughs> well, just good, every good day is a little for, painful. For being willing <laughs> to do that. You know, I watched my dad passed away about a decade ago and my mom, you know, I didn't, I wasn't living in their home or anything at the time, but I could, I mean, she was his caregiver and uh, I yeah. was so, I'm still so moved by how she demonstrated her love for him through service. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's really remarkable. Yeah. So I honor you and acknowledge you for, for the fact you're doing that for your own parents and your, and it sounds like to some degree your sister. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's a, yeah, it's a process. It's a process. Yeah. <laughs> All of life is, I think. That's true. It's the reason why we're here, right? Yeah. Well, to and to evolve, right? Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, again, for making time. 
I'm really grateful for the book you've written and for the conversation that we've had here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you know, the School for Good Living listeners. I think people who pick up your book, um, whether or not you know, they've been touched by a diagnosis like yours or someone in their life has, that they'll be glad they read it. You could read this on probably a couple of long flights. It took mm-hmm. it took me a while, but I'm I'm glad I I'm glad I read it. I really enjoyed I mean, it. The audiobook version is six hours and thirty three minutes. So, you which know. you read yourself, right? I did. Yes, I did. Yeah, and actually, people cool. very much enjoyed that because they can hear my. You know, it's like they're like, oh yeah, this book was definitely written by you. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, good. Well, and I yeah. I think that what you've shared about writing, I suspect, will be useful for people who are also, you know, aspiring either to complete a project or who've been you know, thinking about it for a while. So, uh, and I certainly enjoyed and benefited from the things we've talked about that way. So when you get your next book done, maybe we'll do this again. Oh, I'd love that. And thank you, Brian. This has been so fun. Well, okay. I will, I will let you go, but I will look forward to the time we connect again next, whenever it is. Absolutely. Me too. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.